My days working and taking care of my little ones can be a lot. I checked out care.com and it was so easy for me to find local, experienced, and background check sitters. Finding our babysitter was way more affordable than I thought. Care.com makes it super easy. Search for qualified candidates. You can view their profiles, read reviews and ratings, check their availability, send messages directly, get the help that you need. Care.com should be every person's go-to. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another tale in our ongoing series, The Blacklist. Are you a member of the Communist Party? Or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? A quarantine is necessary to keep it from inspecting the read and advocate the views expressed. I had my way about it. They'd all be sent back to Russia. One of the things that has become clear over the course of our last two episodes is the extent to which many stars would go to make sure that they were on the right side, no pun intended, of the political hysteria of the HUAC era. A particularly tragic example of a star caught up in this was John Garfield. John Garfield, like our subject last week, Robert Taylor, is hardly known today. But there was a time when he was a massive star. A veteran of New York's group theater, Garfield came to Hollywood in the late 1930s on what he thought was a temporary jaunt. But then his first picture, Four Daughters, became a massive hit, earning Garfield an Oscar nomination and establishing him as a star. Garfield was a new kind of movie star, providing a template for the Brandos and Pacinos that followed. He was a Jewish kid from the Lower East Side with a chip on his shoulder, and he looked like it, and he acted like it, which was in itself revolutionary for a leading man in the early 1930s. Garfield also had incredible charisma and sex appeal, on screen and off, 
And so he made being a five foot seven kid from the old neighborhood who longed to better his life without losing himself seem glamorous. All of this made him the perfect male specimen for film noir, and Garfield would star in a couple of classics of the genre, including his last major hit, Body and Soul, which was Scorsese's acknowledged key inspiration for Raging Bull. But four years after Body and Soul, Garfield would make his final film, and a year after that, he was dead at the age of 39. Garfield's friends and family have blamed the blacklist for the actor's posthumous obscurity. It's also been suggested that the blacklist itself actually killed him. These are bold statements, and as usual, the truth is not quite that simple. But it is true that Garfield was a major target of organizations like the American Legion and publications like Red Channels, a work of specious anti-communist propaganda which was used as evidence to deny alleged communists' work. And it's true that this persecution weighed heavy on Garfield, who already had a weak heart. And it's true that his heart gave out before his career was able to rebound. Today we'll talk about why Garfield, who once joked that he had been rejected by the Communist Party for being too stupid, became a target of HUAC, and what he did to try to appease his accusers without naming names, and how his career and life slipped away before he could fully clear his name. Join us, won't you, for the blacklist story of John Garfield. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow, whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits. Shopify helps you sell everywhere, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odyssey podcast all lowercase go to shopify.com slash odyssey podcast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash odyssey podcast julie garfield as he was called for most of his adult life by those close to him was born julius garfinkel in 1913 on rivington street in the lower east side His dad was a garment factory worker turned tailor who had fled the anti-Semitic pogroms in Russia just four years before Julie's birth. When Julie's mother died, his father married a woman Julie didn't like, and by the time he was a teenager, he had drifted away from his family. As a kid on the streets of the Bowery and Chinatown, 
Juliet always found refuge in street gangs, who gave him the sense of camaraderie that he was missing at home. They also gave him an ethos, a code based on loyalty and protecting one's own, that would guide certain major aspects of his life. As a teenager, Julie met the girl he'd go on to marry, Robbie Seidman, also the kid of a local tailor. While Julie's father was extremely conservative and extremely religious, Robbie's father was a local leftist activist who introduced his daughter to the fight for workers' rights. By the time she and Julie married, Robbie would have joined the Communist Party. After his sophomore year of high school, Julie, much to his family's chagrin, had decided to quit high school and become an actor. He bluffed his way into an audition at the American Laboratory Theater, which was run by graduates of the Moscow Art Theater. Julie did well enough at his audition that he was allowed to attend the school on a trial basis and earn a scholarship. With the Depression beginning to hit New York streets, 16-year-old Julie started studying sense memory and other techniques that would later be lumped under the rubric of method acting. He also studied with the future actors and teachers who would become instrumental in spreading this new style of performance to Broadway and Hollywood, including Lee Strasberg and Stella Adler. After a couple of years, Julie and a friend decided to road trip to California. They rode the rails, found day work picking fruit, went to jail for vagrancy. Julie returned to New York at the dawn of 1931, suffering from typhoid fever. He recovered, but barely, and his heart would be permanently damaged. He went to work selling women's diaphragms by day and attending acting classes at night. In one of these classes, Julie met Clifford Odets, who introduced him to the fledgling group theater. Started by Strasberg, Harold Clerman, and Cheryl Crawford, the initial purpose of the group theater was to produce plays guided by the Stanislavski method. It would later be branded a communist front. Julie joined the group in 1934, and pretty much immediately joined them in the Catskills for a kind of summer camp. Many of the founding and early members of the group theater were to the left in their politics, and some were registered communists. This was happening during the worst of the Depression, when evidence of economic inequality was everywhere you looked in a city like New York, and the group was most radical in their intention to put a conversation about that inequality on Broadway stages. They did have conversations about politics in which many members agreed that the party was the only one doing anything to solve problems like unemployment, and they hoped that they could change public opinion with theater. But the group members didn't always act committed to the communist cause. The resort they trained in that summer was luxurious, complete with swimming pools and tennis courts, and Stella Adler's signature look at the time involved a mink stole. But most audience members didn't know about these contradictions in January 1935, when Waiting for Lefty debuted. Odette's play about taxi drivers deciding to strike was mounted for one night only with a cast of group theater members, including Julie in a smaller role. At the end of the play, the actors on stage started chanting, Strike! 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 On premiere night... Odette's and two other group members planned to stand up from the audience and chant with them. Not realizing that this was a setup, the entire audience stood up and joined the chant. This evolved into a 45-minute standing ovation. That night, the group theater took center stage as an artistic movement, capturing the times. Waiting for Lefty became a nationwide hit, 
Odette's became a national celebrity, and opportunities for group members to move into the spotlight followed. Julie starred in the next Odette's play, Awake and Sing, which was also radical in its depiction of the working class, and also a box office hit. Julie Garfield was aware of the politics all around him, but he wasn't personally a political animal. He signed petitions that his wife and Odette's told him to sign, in the same way that he spoke the lines in the script he was given. He would become an avatar for the angry young man, put upon by the system and always striving to get a piece of the American dream by any means necessary. But in real life, he was less angry than agreeable. The other members of the group didn't take Julie seriously. They didn't think he had what it took to be a great actor, And it was clear to all that politically, he was a lightweight. The group theater's commercial success was short-lived. And soon enough, all of its members were broke and vulnerable to the beckoning of Hollywood. The call came for Julie in 1938. Actually, it was two calls. Both Warner Brothers and MGM asked Julie to do screen tests, and both offered him contracts. Garfield went with Warner Brothers because it was a shorter commitment, just two movies in six months. He went out to L.A. by himself because Robbie was pregnant, and they assumed he'd be back in New York soon enough. He'd always say that he went to Hollywood intending to fail, so that he could return to New York with a little bit of money in hand to concentrate on the theater. As it turned out, it would take about 10 years for Garfield to fail. Part of the reason for that is that Warner Brothers didn't just offer what Julie thought at the time was the most attractive offer in terms of length. They were also the best studio for him to be at, because they were the only studio that regularly made movies about stuff that real Americans would recognize as familiar to their own real lives. It was the studio that had been made by the jazz singer, which was the first talkie feature, but was also a movie about a Jewish kid who aspires for something better than life in a tenement on the Lower East Side. Warner Brothers would go on to capitalize on the gangster movie craze of the 1930s better than any other studio. John Garfield was an original, but if anything, at Warner Brothers there were maybe too many guys with similar DNA. When Julie showed up in 1938, the big Warner Brothers stars were guys like Jimmy Cagney, Paul Muni, Edward G. Robinson, and George Raft. Bogart was rising too. Maybe that's why Julie was immediately cast according to type, but as a fish out of water. Four Daughters, directed by Michael Curtiz, four years before Casablanca, is a sweet slice of middle American life dramedy about a music teacher and his four dating age daughters, three of whom are played by the singing trio, the Lane Sisters. Garfield is Mickey Borden, a creature of the streets who shows up to work with a composer who's renting a room in the family's house and also wooing one of the girls. In this scene, Garfield introduces himself into the movie and to America as a sly-talking bad boy. But then, as soon as he's left alone, he stubs out his smoke and starts playing the piano beautifully. There it is. Come in, Mickey. I've been waiting for you. Been struggling with this opus for days. Say, you're going to find this arrangement right up your alley. Mmm, rug on the floor, smell of cooking in the kitchen, piano, and flowers. It's homes like these that are the backbone of the nation. Where's the spinning wheel? Shut up. Did you miss the train? I ignore the train. 
thumb my way up. Why, well, I gave you more than enough for the fare. Well, I bet the five dollars on a horse I could have bought for seven. You had a lovely name, Felix, that I can't for the life of me remember. This time of day, there's plenty of traffic from town. You shouldn't have been this late. Oh, I had lots of offers from small fry, Fords, Chevys, but I held out for a town car. It's a poor man's privilege. Well, I have to get over to the foundation, class from three to four. Suppose you get a room in this town for a few weeks till we're through. Save you a lot of traveling. It's all right with me. I was evicted this morning. I'm going to miss those cobwebs. <laughs> well, you look over this first movement. I'll be back a little after four, then we'll get your room. Well, just so it's on the other side of the railroad tracks. I can't breathe this clean air. <laughs> Say, there's a lady in the kitchen. Introduce yourself to her. Name's Aunt Etta. I know the type. See you later. This would be the John Garfield that audiences would fall in love with. He could embody hard luck cool with slickness and authenticity, and then a split second later reveal his soft underbelly. Mocking the comfort in which the family at the center of the movie lives is his defense mechanism, and it's part of his projection of masculinity. But only part. His persona is completed by the other part, the part which he's defending, the part that dreams. John Garfield was thus James Dean, a decade and a half before James Dean, and calibrated to suit the pre-war tail end of the Depression, rather than post-war conformity. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. And just as Dean would, Garfield came out of nowhere to become the hottest young actor in Hollywood and a new type of heartthrob. He got an Oscar nomination for his first movie, and Warner Brothers exercised their option on his two-film contract which meant that Julie got a substantive raise, but it also meant that he and Robbie would have to move to Los Angeles for real. In 1938, his first year as a star, he shot six films. Fame hit Julie like a cyclone, and he responded somewhat inelegantly in that he started having sex with a lot of women who weren't his wife, and he started gambling. Both activities were, in a way, responses to insecurity. He needed affirmation that he was liked, that he really was a winner, especially since he spent so many days at Warner Brothers playing losers. For all of his extracurricular activities, Julie remained close to his wife, who was still actively involved in the Communist Party. Together they became part of Hollywood's leftist social scene, hanging out with liberals like Gene Kelly and communists like Abraham Polonsky and Paul Jericho. Julie was not the most intellectual guy, and he reportedly had a habit of falling asleep at parties when Robbie and a crew of screenwriters would start talking politics. It seems like the activist crew who his wife hung with, which included a number of screenwriters who would later be blacklisted, looked at Julie in much the same way the group theater had, almost as a mascot 
a guy who was fun to have hanging around, that no one took seriously. Perhaps because he wanted to impress those guys, and or due to pressure from his wife, Julie started signing virtually any petition put in front of him and giving generously to a whole host of causes. Call this insecurity rearing its ugly head again, but in 1940, it didn't seem like there was anything ugly about it. It wasn't yet considered a bad thing to donate to what seemed like good causes, even if the politics underlying the cause was somewhat to the left of liberal. John Garfield was on the radar of HUAC almost as soon as he arrived in Hollywood, thanks to this kind of open-door political support. But as we've seen, HUAC didn't have teeth back in 1938. Though Garfield would make a number of anti-war statements in 1938 through 1940, by the time the U.S. actually entered the war, he was as gung-ho about the fight as could be. He desperately wanted to enlist, but his bad heart got him classified for F. So instead, he did everything else. He tirelessly entertained on USO tours, building a gag around the telling of bad jokes that soldiers loved. He sold war bonds, and with his fellow Warner Brothers star Betty Davis, he started the Hollywood Canteen, where movie stars served pie and coffee to servicemen. And he played enlisted men, most impressively in Pride of the Marines, based on a true story about a soldier blinded in a firefight in Japan who returns home and must adjust to his new sightless life. He also starred with Cary Grant in Destination Tokyo, written by future Hollywood 10 member Albert Maltz. To help him get into character, Garfield used what he called his man-maker, a small box on which he could stand to elevate his stature to that of Grant and the other actors. And then, as the war was coming to an end, Julie pioneered Hollywood's depiction of the World War II forgotten man, opposite Lana Turner in the sultry proto-noir, The Postman Always Rings Twice. The war era was the peak of Garfield's stardom. But of course, every high point is prologue to a fall. And for Julie, though there would be plenty of good times and great work ahead, ominous things started to happen in 1945. The first was personal. His daughter, Catherine, who suffered from asthma, had gone on an overnight trip with a new nanny, who didn't think it was serious when the little girl started complaining of a sore throat. By the time they returned to the Garfield house early the next morning, six-year-old Catherine was having significant trouble breathing. Robbie held her daughter and asked the nanny to call an ambulance and wake Catherine's father. Julie scrambled out of bed, but he was a second too late. Catherine was dead in Robbie's arms. Julie was in shock. He had brought a machine gun back from a USO tour, and now he got it, loaded it, went out into the backyard, and emptied the clip into a wall. And then he disappeared, running off into the Hollywood Hills in tears. He ended up stumbling down Hollywood Boulevard, and a friend happened to drive by and see him. The friend pulled over, assuming Julie was drunk. Without explaining what had happened, Julie wailed, God did this to me. He did this to me for all the bad things I've done. And then he passed out. In the aftermath of the death of their daughter, Robbie cut back on her political activities. 
and Julie would distance himself further from the home, beginning with an affair with Turner on the set of Postman. That film wrapped in the fall of 1945, and around that same time came a warning sign, which Garfield might not have even noticed. He didn't know yet what to look for. In 1940, what was left of the group theater had disbanded, and some of its members had moved to Hollywood and started a new acting studio called the Actors Lab. Julie had tried to join the lab, just as he had previously joined the group, but the new school was both dismissive of his talents and happy to take advantage of his celebrity when it was convenient. Then, in late 1945, the Hollywood Reporter accused the Actors Lab of being dominated by Reds. Like the group theater before it, the Actors Lab did include communists, including John Howard Lawson and Larry Parks. It also included Lloyd Bridges and eventually Marilyn Monroe. The group theater had presented plays that served a mirror to the working man's own angst as a pawn in the system in which his labor was exploited and he had no power. But the group also did their own exploitation in the name of capital, chasing movie stars like Francis Farmer to fund their plays. A decade later, the Actors Lab seemed to be a threat not because it was trying to overthrow the government and not even because of the revolutionary nature of its work. They weren't generating new Awaken Sings. And in fact, at one point, they revived Awaken Sing, starring Julie. The main reason why the Actors Lab was deemed suspicious in 1945 was that it made it a policy to be inclusive of all races. It's also worth noting that method acting was the polar opposite of what Hollywood conservatives like John Wayne and Barbara Stanwyck did. It was a complete rebuke to the concept of studios manufacturing stars, and thus it was potentially a threat to the existing Hollywood power structure. If Julie or his friends saw this article in 1945, they didn't make a big deal out of it. They might have even laughed it off. But the fact that the Hollywood Reporter was seizing on the lab as early as 1945 was an indication of how fast and how drastically the tide was turning. In 1946, Julie made the last film of his contract to Warner Brothers, humoresque, a fitting bookend to his time at the studio in that it once again cast him as a working-class musician. This time, he's a classical violinist who becomes a star thanks to his benefactor, a beautiful married woman played by Joan Crawford. Their messy affair ends with Crawford walking to her death in the ocean. The screenplay was written by Garfield's old friend Clifford Odets, who worked Julie's difficult relationship with his disapproving father into the movie. The character also shares Julie's real-life weakness for women and his use of sex as an affirmation of how far he'd come, here dramatized in his inability to stay away from Crawford's unbearably glamorous but troubled benefactor, even when there's a nice, smart girl of his own class waiting for him at home. Humoresque is my favorite John Garfield movie because the twin aspects of his nature seem most tragically intertwined in it, And because as shot through the eyes of a slightly older, predatory Joan Crawford, he's crazy sexy in it. There's this one scene in which he lies back on a couch wearing only a white terry cloth bathrobe. That's really something. Humoresque and The Postman Always Rings Twice were huge hits. 
And instead of re-upping with Warner Brothers or looking for a better offer elsewhere, Julie and his business manager, Bob Roberts, started a new production company. Julie saw this as a new beginning, with a new frontier outside of the studio system waiting for him to conquer it. He didn't know that it was the beginning of the end of his film career. The films Garfield produced and starred in between 1947 and 1951 are, in the minds of a lot of people, his best films. It was basically coincidental that most of them were written and or directed by people who would later be identified as communists, and that pretty much all of them included some kind of critique of either capitalism or white male supremacy that might have fit in at the Warner Brothers of the 1930s, but which was much more conspicuous in the early glory days of HUAC. Let's put aside Gentleman's Agreement, the anti-anti-Semitism drama which won Best Picture, and in which Julie played the surprisingly minor role of the Jewish friend. And let's focus on the movies on which Garfield had creative control. The first of these movies was the most successful, Body and Soul starred Garfield as a boxer who rose out of the New York streets to become a star. But success corrupts, and at the beginning of the movie, before we flash back to see how he got there, Julie's boxer agrees to throw the fight for a payday. Body and Soul, written by Abe Polonsky and directed by Robert Rawson, was progressive in other ways, too. Julie had personally fought to get black actor Canada Lee cast in the role of a boxing champ. When he was asked in a production meeting, why don't you just avoid any trouble and make the champion white? Julie's answer was two words long. Fuck you. Body and Soul was in production when the first closed-door HUAC hearings of 1947 began. Garfield was mentioned as a possible communist during these hearings, but he didn't take them seriously. Few people did. It certainly didn't stop him from attending the rally for quasi-socialist candidate Henry Wallace, the same rally where Katherine Hepburn made that speech wearing that red dress, which you'll remember from the earlier episode in this series. By the time the hearings resumed in Washington that fall, Garfield had joined forces with the Committee for the First Amendment. When a reporter asked if he was a communist when he arrived in Washington to support the Hollywood Ten, Julie pointed to the extensive USO tours he had done during the war, which he wouldn't have been allowed to take part in had the FBI not vetted him thoroughly. Body and Soul was a massive hit in 1947, running well into the next year. Julie was nominated for a Best Actor Oscar, but he didn't attend the ceremony. By that point, he and Robbie and their two kids had moved back to New York. Julie used his freedom from a studio contract to star first in a play called Skipper Next to God, and then in another Odette's production called The Big Knife. The Big Knife would be made into a movie a few years later starring Jack Palance and Ida Lupino. We talked about it in our episode on Lupino way back in 2014. The theatrical version was unofficially co-written by John Garfield, who would sit at a diner with Odette's into the odd hours, infusing the story of a movie star blackmailed by his studio, with the stuff of his own experience. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. 
The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. It's likely that it was around this time that the FBI started taking Julie seriously. An FBI informant filed a report containing a negative review of Body and Soul, which they denounced for showing a quote-unquote noble black man while portraying the quote rich and successful man in a bad light. But John Garfield was just getting started. The next film, which he'd both star in and produce, Force of Evil, was both written and directed by Polanski and it featured Garfield as a corrupt lawyer in a gangster drama built around the metaphor that capitalism itself is equivalent to crime. When he was having trouble getting into character, Polanski told Garfield to think of his character as just like the money-drunk fighter he played in Body and Soul, only with a college degree. But Force of Evil didn't connect with audiences the same way Body and Soul had. In fact, they didn't know what to make of it. Garfield then starred in We Were Strangers, John Huston's movie about Cuban revolutionaries, which Huston and Peter Viertel essentially wrote on the spot, but which the media put forward as a work of highly calculated communist propaganda. We've seen in previous episodes that the makers of the film Crossfire were essentially excommunicated from Hollywood between the date the film was nominated for a bunch of Oscars and the night of the actual awards ceremony. A similar thing was happening to Garfield. He went in the blink of an eye from having the capital to make two independent movies that were critical of capitalism, one of which was a major hit for which he was nominated for an Oscar, to being used by a witch-hunting press as one of the faces of the enemy. Clearly aware that playing with fire had singed him, Julie began to withdraw from public support of the Hollywood Ten, and any other cause that painted him pink. Stress was getting to him, and in 1949, while filming a minor picture called Under the Skin, he had a heart attack. Julie was in the hospital for a few days, and production on the movie was suspended. But then he showed up on the street in Hollywood, where he bumped into Gregory Peck. Peck was like, didn't you just have a heart attack? And Julie said, ah, the hell with that. I'm only 36. I'm not going to be a heart patient, and I'm not going to take heart pills. If I'm going to die, I'll die with my boots on. Julie was apparently afraid that he couldn't afford the bad publicity of being sick, so he pretended that he wasn't. If he was looking to show what he could do while playing by a studio's rules, he got that chance when he was invited back to Warner Brothers to play a man in a similarly desperate bind in The Breaking Point directed by Michael Curtiz and based on Hemingway's To Have and Have Not. Though he didn't produce this one, Garfield took an active role in helping to shape the material, telling Curtiz he wanted to show a man in a long-term marriage who still has the hots for his wife, and encouraging the director to take the opportunity to present a secondary character, who was black, as a man of real substance. Curtiz's film is a more faithful and more raw adaptation than the Howard Hawks movie which brought Bogart and Bacall together, but it didn't have the hook of sex and scandal to help it sell. And Warner Brothers didn't really try to sell it, 
three months before the breaking point opened in September 1950, Julie was outed as having been associated with dozens of quote-unquote communist front groups by red channels. At the time, some felt that Jack Warner had purposefully underpromoted the movie out of spite for his red, or at least red sympathetic, star. It was the citation by Red Channels that all but ended Garfield's Hollywood career, landing him on the unwritten list of those considered persona non grata by all movie studios, and maybe more heartbreaking for Garfield, on the official list of performers barred from USO activities by the Department of Defense. Whether it was entirely because of his unwelcome political reputation or had something to do with the fact that his previous four films hadn't done well at the box office, by the fall of 1950, Julie's work phone wasn't ringing. He pinned all of his hopes on his next film, in which he'd play a fugitive criminal who falls in love with one of his hostages, and he ran all the way. Written by Dalton Trumbo, He Ran All the Way was co-produced by United Artists, with Julie himself putting up the rest of the production money. He Ran All the Way was supposed to remind audiences how good a John Garfield picture could be. And it was good, but it was also really different from the films of his Warner Brothers heyday. It looks and feels like an indie movie, with the pre-hiding out scenes shot in an almost neorealist style. Emotionally and physically, Julie was exhausted, and director John Barry makes the most of this. He presents Garfield, once so cool and seductive, as sweaty and frantic, paranoid and scared. Garfield's on-screen relationship with the much younger Shelley Winters, even though initially strategic, seems pathetic and sad. United Artists didn't release He Ran All the Way right away, And in March 1951, the House and American Activities Committee announced that they were subpoenaing a number of Hollywood people, including John Garfield. Julie had a little less than two months to strategize before his date to testify. He wasn't a communist and had never been a communist, but he knew by now that the FBI knew this and that he hadn't been subpoenaed to defend himself. He had been subpoenaed because he was a movie star who was well-connected to most of Hollywood's still active communists. And if he named names, the headlines would be huge, even bigger than four years earlier with Robert Taylor. The obvious way out would be to name names. But Julie didn't want to do that. He couldn't do that. To do so would defy the code of the streets that he grew up with, but maybe more importantly, It would go against what he had always stood for on screen. Turning rat might fix it with the studios so that they would let him work again. But what would his fans think? Julie issued a statement in which he declared that he had never been a communist or a communist sympathizer and said he planned to cooperate with the committee. Then he and his lawyer tried to figure out how he could make it look like he was cooperating without giving the committee what they really wanted. On some level, Huack was just happy to have him. Julie was the biggest star that they had ever corralled as an unfriendly witness. On the other hand, his star had dimmed after four flops, and the committee knew, and Julie knew, that his performance on the stand would determine whether or not he was allowed to continue being a star going forward. 
At this stage in his life, the only thing Julie cared about was acting. His goal was to save his Hollywood career without losing himself. So, in a sense, John Garfield approached his testimony before HUAC as theater. On the stand, he acted. Mostly he was just evasive or faux-forgetful. But in response to a couple of questions, Garfield straight up lied. Most conspicuously, when he was asked if he knew any communists. At first, Julie tried to avoid the question, but it kept coming up. Congressman Veld, I don't think you have answered the question the council asked you. He asked if you knew any of the Communist Party members. Garfield, officially, do you mean? Veld, either from statements they made to you or from what you learned about them. Garfield, no, sir. Then Congressman Wood gave it a try. Wood, let me ask you categorically, have you any knowledge of the identity of a single individual who was a member of the Communist Party during the time you were in Hollywood? Garfield, no, sir. This was absurd, of course. Everyone involved knew that Garfield's wife had been an active Communist Party member. But there seems to have been a gentleman's agreement not to mention her during his public hearing. What HUAC wanted was for Julie to sell out friends and collaborators like Polanski. What they dreamed of was that he might finger a big fish from the actor's community. They tried all kinds of side streets to get there. At one point, one congressman made a big deal of the fact that Julie knew that a performance of his had been badly reviewed by the Daily Worker. The congressman got the actor to admit that he had purchased a copy of the publication to read the negative review. But then that fell flat when another congressman sheepishly admitted that the committee subscribed to the Daily Worker. Again and again, they returned to the key question. Did he know any communists in Hollywood? And again and again, Julie lied. After three hours, he was finally dismissed. Several congressmen approached him for autographs as he exited the hall. Julie thought he had succeeded in stonewalling the questioning without naming names, and that that would be that. He was wrong. The red-baiting press attacked HUAC for letting Garfield lie to their faces. HUAC, embarrassed, announced that they were going to have the FBI fact-check Julie's testimony. He ran all the way, finally opened, and flopped. With no Hollywood work in the offering, Julie embarked on starring in a grueling Turing production of Clifford Odets' Golden Boy. By the time the tour was over, Garfield was physically run down, and his morale was low. His testimony hadn't repaired his career. If anything, it had caused more problems. An article titled, Did the Movies Really Clean House? in the American Legion magazine, cited Garfield as one of the key commies still working in movies. What the American Legion didn't seem to realize, perhaps due to the belated release of He Ran All the Way, was that Garfield wasn't working in movies. In fact, he couldn't get hired in Hollywood. In ostensibly shining light in dark corners, they were actually kicking him while he was down. 
The irony here was that Julie hadn't saved himself by outing other members of the Hollywood community. He didn't want to do that. But the American Legion was in cahoots with the Motion Picture Alliance for the Preservation of American Ideals, which meant Garfield was the target of a takedown attempt sponsored by other members of the Hollywood community. He was being followed by the FBI, who were trying and failing to prove Garfield's party membership, the stress, and their fundamental disagreement over the extent to which Julie cooperated, moved he and Robbie to separate. Julie started working with a lawyer on a long article in which he would claim he had been duped by communists into joining their front groups. The article was submitted to Look magazine, which rejected it. It started to seem all but certain that Garfield would be indicted for perjury. In May 1952, Garfield met with the FBI. He told them that he had been barred from working in Hollywood and that he wanted to clear his name. The agent showed him their dossier on Robbie and told him that if he signed a statement confirming that his estranged wife was a communist, they'd make all of his professional problems go away. According to Julie's friends, Garfield told the FBI agents the same thing he had told the Body and Soul producer who wanted to cast a white guy instead of Canada Lee. Fuck you. Two weeks later, Garfield was turned down for a part on a CBS TV show, which to him meant he had tried to scrape the bottom of the barrel and had been blocked from doing so. Two days after that, Clifford Odets appeared before HUAC and named names. That night, Julie went to an all-night poker game and lost a lot of money. The next night, he had dinner at a Chinese restaurant with a girlfriend named Iris Whitney. They went back to her place, and Julie wasn't feeling well, so Iris put him to bed alone. John Garfield never woke up. Julie's untimely death didn't quiet the media. In fact, the fact that his body was found in the bed of a woman who wasn't his wife created more headlines, more opportunities to question Julie's character. Newspapers speculated that Julie had been on the brink of finally naming names when he died. His friends and family didn't believe it. His daughter Julie has claimed that there was some kind of backroom deal between Huack and the studios, where the former demanded a sacrificial lamb and the latter, faced with losing a still-under-contract star like Edward G. Robinson or Danny Kaye, instead told the committee to go after Garfield, who had thumbed his nose at the establishment by starting his own production outfit. This is unconfirmable, but crazier things have turned out to be true. Even though he had been barred from working in Hollywood and his last few movies had bombed, John Garfield was still beloved enough at the time of his death that the NYPD told his widow that if she didn't open his funeral to the public, there'd be a riot. In fact, an estimated 6,000 strangers showed up at the Manhattan Funeral Home to mourn Garfield, most of them seemingly working class and many of them African-American. Garfield had been put in his place by the powers that be, but he was still beloved by the people for whom that kind of suppression was just a day in the life.
Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. This episode was written, narrated, and produced by Karina Longworth, that's me, with production assistance from Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our editor is Henry Malofsky, and our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at RememberThisPod. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. For more information about this episode and other episodes, please go to our website, YouMustRememberThisPodcast.com. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. know that science solves crimes. Forensic science is exciting, challenging, and most of all, rewarding work. But there's a shortage of qualified individuals in this field. Hi, I'm Terry with Loyola University of Maryland's Forensic Science Department. Loyola is one of the only colleges in the country offering advanced degrees in forensic pattern analysis and biological forensics. Our courses, taught by forensic experts, feature hands-on training and small class sizes. They are based on real crime scene and forensic examiner training programs to ensure you are ready to make a difference. Our programs are open to students from a variety of academic backgrounds because we believe everyone can contribute to solving crimes. So what are you waiting for? Discover the excitement of forensic science at Loyola University, Maryland. Visit loyola.edu forward slash forensic for more information. That's loyola.edu forward slash forensic because you are ready to make a difference. Join one of Loyola University Maryland's forensic science programs today.